Today's scripture reading is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Well, tonight people are going to gather across America for what is the largest multi-site worship event Every year in our country, Super Bowl, over a hundred million people watch that thing. And of course, New Englanders are particularly interested in the outcome this evening as our Patriots vie for their fourth NFL championship under our great hero, Tom Brady, in his sixth Super Bowl appearance of his career. As one sports writer describes, to win the Super Bowl, it takes full organizational commitment from the very top on down. Millions of dollars must be spent, thousands of man hours must be burned, and dozens of people must give everything they have around the clock for years on end. Even then, you'll need a lot of luck. But that's what these teams set out to do, right? It's what they've been working toward all year. There's an all-consuming passion and drive to succeed, to win the prize. But the question that every one of them will begin to ask on Monday morning, will the prize really satisfy? When Tom Brady was interviewed... After his third Super Bowl victory 10 years ago, he said, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And when he was asked what the answer was, he replied, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And he still seems to wonder. 
according to an interview in this week's New York Times, reflecting on those very words from 10 years ago, he said, I got a litany of Bibles sent to me after that. (laughs) When I think back on that, what a narrow perspective I had. I'm 27. I don't know Jack. Not that I know Jack at 37. We all have this drive to succeed, to find fulfillment and satisfaction in life. We want our lives to matter. We want them to count for something. As Dave Harvey writes in his book, Rescuing Ambition, he says, we're pursuers. We go after things that we value. So what is it for you? You If you're not sure... Look at how you spend your time, your money. Consider what you think about, where your mind drifts, what you notice and ponder. When all is said and done, we actually go after what, is, what truly matters to us. We chase what we love. It's something in the way that we're wired, be it books or Broadway or Botox. We pursue what we value. And, and this drive, this passion and pursuit to find fulfillment, not only is it common to all humanity, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Passion and ambition are not in and of themselves bad. In his letter to the Philippians that we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul describes his own passion and ambition in chapter 3 in very athletic terms. Philippians 3, 12 through 14 says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's passion. That's ambition. There's a prize that he's after. And we we all chase something in life. We all are looking for significance or for fulfillment. And, And what makes the difference is not our level of devotion or commitment or desire or determination. What makes the difference is whether the prize we're after is truly worth it. That's the question whether that prize will truly honor God and satisfy our souls. Or whether, to use a phrase from the book of Ecclesiastes, we're just chasing after the wind. Let's pray and look at our passage this morning. Gracious God, when we open your word, it's your voice that we want to hear. And this morning is no different. So we pray that you would speak through your word by your spirit, into our hearts to make Jesus known. In Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about the gospel for all of life. That's the series that we've begun uh, at the start of the year. How believing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not only how we begin a relationship with God, but it's how we continue to grow in that relationship with God in every step of life 
uh, in every facet of life. And the question that we're at in this point of the series is what difference does the good news of Jesus make in our personal lives, in our hearts, so the gospel in me? And last week we talked about our identity, who we are in Christ, how we've died to sin and we're alive to God through our union with Jesus. And this morning I want to talk about our ambitions, our passions, our pursuits, our desires that search for fulfillment and satisfaction in life. The thing that makes our hearts tick every day that tells us why to get up, what we're after. How, how am I going to know at the end of the day where, whether today was worth it or not? That drive, that's what I want to talk about this morning. And our guide is Philippians 3. If you're not still there, I encourage you to, to turn, turn there in your Bibles or in the, in the pew Bible in front of you. Now, if you have been part of Westgate for a few years, you'll know that I preached through the book of Philippians in 2011 and 12. I make no apologies if I repeat myself this morning, just so you know. Uh, For starters, I can't even remember what I said three years ago. But more than that, I find myself in very good company in this chapter when Paul says in in Philippians 3.1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. So if I preach the same things to you, it's no trouble to me this morning. But, you know, let's read the whole verse and what he's saying there. Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So what is it that he's writing over and over again to them in this book? He's calling them to rejoice in. In the Lord. The book of Philippians is known for its emphasis on joy. Uh, The word joy or rejoice occurs 14 times in this small little letter. But when Paul talks about joy here, he's not just talking about kind of a, a generic disposition of happiness. You know, be a nice person, be joyful. He's talking about a very specific joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus, delight yourselves, find your satisfaction and your significance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in this world, not in our circumstances, not in each other, not even in what Jesus gives us, but in Jesus himself. And according to Paul here, that kind of joyful satisfaction that is anchored in Jesus That is a safeguard for our ambitions. It's a guardrail for our pursuits and our passions. If you want your life to count for something, if you want it to matter tomorrow morning when you wake up and at the end of your life, let Jesus be your prize. Let him be your passion. Let knowing him be your pursuit. There is no gain in this world that compares to knowing Jesus and being counted righteous through faith in him. That's Paul's point, and he makes it in a couple of ways here. First, by warning us against the temptation to chase after prizes that will never actually satisfy. So he starts by warning us against that, the temptation to find our joy, our satisfaction, our fulfillment in what this world offers even in our own accomplishments, even our accomplishments for God. 
So he warns us against that. And then he drives his point home by affirming the incomparable satisfaction that comes from knowing Christ and being found in him. So we'll look first at at the temptation to fix our eyes on a prize that never actually satisfies. Verses 2 through 6. And he starts here, again, by warning the church about those who seek their prize in their own performance and their own self-righteousness. If you look at verse 2, Paul says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Sounds kind of nasty, you know, honestly. It's not very polite. Uh, In a book that's otherwise what people have described as Paul's happiest letter, this is kind of as, this is pretty sharp. But when Paul wrote this letter, there were some who were teaching and trying to influence churches like those in ancient Philippi that trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross was simply not enough to declare us in the right with God. We call them today, we refer to them today as, quote, the Judaizers. We don't know what they called themselves. Uh, The circumcision is one title they threw around. But we often refer to them as the Judaizers because they were a group of Jews who were willing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah but claimed that a true follower of God still had to become Jewish. So it wasn't, Jesus wasn't enough. It was a Jesus plus Judaism. That's what really mattered for God. So you had to receive the sign of the covenant, circumcision. You had to keep the law of Moses that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. Unlike the Gentile dogs, that was you know a first century word, well, it's a word that first century Jews would often use to describe non-Jews, Gentiles. So unlike those unclean dogs who practiced evil instead of following God's law and who participated in pagan rituals that sometimes involved cutting themselves and other forms of mutilation, the Judaizers prided themselves in their heritage as God's people and in their performance of God's law. That was their badge of honor. That was their identity. That was their prize. That was where they sought their fulfillment. And they thought that because of all of that, they were then qualified to know and worship God. And so to warn this ancient church, Paul tells them, Paul does something a little bit playful. He labels the Judaizers with the very terms and ideas that they had labeled others. He turns it on their head. And then he takes a title that they kind of used as a badge of their own identity, the circumcision, and he applies that to true believers in Jesus. So he's, he's being playful here. Apart from Jesus, the Judaizers were the dogs. Their law-keeping was actually an evil substitute for trusting Christ's righteousness, and their circumcision was nothing more than a pagan mutilation. I mean, it's pretty insulting. But on the contrary, Paul says in verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers sought a prize that made much of themselves at Christ's expense. Paul will have none of that. 
he makes much of Christ. And those who find their righteousness in Christ, those are the true people of God. That's what Paul's saying. But then he gets personal. To drive his point even further, he reflects on his own life, showing how even according to the Judaizer standards, Paul still beats them at their game only to disavow everything, to throw it all away. He's just as great, just as righteous, and he offers seven pieces of evidence to make that point. The first four deal with his heritage, where he comes from, and the last three deal with his hard work, what he's accomplished. And so first, this is verses 4 through 6 in your Bibles, he mentions that his, he was circumcised on the eighth day. So he bears the mark of covenant membership under the law of Moses. His parents were faithful Jews who had him properly circumcised according to God's code. Second, he comes from the people or race of Israel. So he claims a kind of genealogical purity, if you will. Third, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. The only tribe to remain loyal to Judah and the throne of David when the kingdom split after Solomon. The tribe of Benjamin. In summary, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a perfect specimen of Israelite heritage. It doesn't get better than this, folks. That's kind of what he's saying. But he then goes on. It's not just his heritage that he boasts in. It's his own hard work, his own performance, what he has accomplished in and of himself. As to the law, a Pharisee. So Paul was an expert on the Old Testament scriptures and the strict Pharisaical tradition that, that surrounded them. He was trained under one of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history, Gamaliel. And then there's his zeal for God and the purity of his people. Paul was kind of a modern-day Phineas. He was going around rooting out heresy by any means possible, traveling the countryside, tracking down these Christians who were who were seemed to be dishonoring God's law and worshiping with Gentiles and all this stuff you're not supposed to do, and he was setting the record straight with them. Finally, as to righteousness under the law, Paul was blameless, which doesn't mean that he achieved some sort of sinless perfection, but that he kept the law in such a way that when he sinned, he offered the right sacrifices to deal with this sin. Uh, He followed the old covenant law as it made provision for those kinds of errors. And so if anyone can claim a kind of satisfaction and fulfillment in what they themselves have accomplished in their heritage and hard work, if anyone can claim greatness before God, it was Paul. That's his point. And though he's only kind of listing these things so that he can trash them in a minute to show how unvaluable they actually are, he puts his finger on what I think is really the heart of the human uh, problem when we seek fulfillment and satisfaction in life. The temptation to look to what we can do, to what we can accomplish, to what we can achieve, our own heritage and hard work in seeking satisfaction and glory that's where we go by default and if that's true then it's good to kind of take a minute and think about where's my heart prone to go in that where where do i find myself tempted to kind of boast in or rely on my own heritage and hard work 
Or maybe think about it this way. If you had to rewrite Paul's little litany of would-be self-righteousness here, what would you hold up and show everybody as kind of your claim to greatness before God? Baptized at Sandy Island? Of the tradition of Protestants? An evangelical of evangelicals? As to zeal, a blogger? As to righteousness, a Sunday school teacher or home group leader? And and, and maybe it's not even a religious identity. Maybe it's something else. An Italian of Italians. An Irishman of Irishmen. A Greek of Greeks. As to education, homeschooled. Or private schooled. Or charter schooled. Or public school, fill in the blank. Where is it that our hearts are inclined to boast and find our fulfillment and satisfaction? Where do we look for our prize? Our portfolio, our bank account, our boat. What is it? Now, none of those are bad things, by the way. Okay? But neither are they ultimate things. And that's the difference. That's the point. The question is, What prize are you chasing, and will that prize ultimately satisfy? What prize are you chasing, and will that prize ultimately satisfy? If you woke up with that prize in your hand tomorrow morning, would you truly be fulfilled? Would it last to the next day and the next? Would it remain stable and consistent such that it would continue to satisfy you even when the rest of life falls apart? Would it truly honor God and satisfy your soul? There's only one prize able to do that. One pursuit that will truly make much of God and fulfill our deepest longings at the same time. And Paul revels in that prize in verses 7 through 11. Knowing Christ. So look at verses 7 through 11 with me. In contrast to Paul's would-be self-righteousness, he begins to kind of disavow his gain, if you will, in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, anything to my credit, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But then he goes a step further. It's not only what was to my gain, it was anything. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, trash, garbage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is passionate, but he's passionate about a very specific prize. And he's willing to lose everything else in order to gain that prize. Which, you know, if he's so interested in being satisfied and fulfilled, 
it, it kind of seems strange that he's so willing and eager to lose everything. Uh, everything that this world values. How is the loss of everything that this world values actually gained? Well, there are three reasons. First, because no worldly gain is actually capable of winning God's approval and acceptance. Because no worldly gain can actually deal with the problem of our sin. So that's the first reason. The second is because that all the gain in this world can't compare to the satisfaction of knowing Jesus and being found in him. And then third, because being satisfied in Jesus frees us to be truly content in life and follow God whatever the cost. So we'll talk about those those three reasons. The first is that loss, the loss of all things is truly gain because only Jesus is actually capable of dealing with our sin. In doing great things, having ambitions and dreams and goals, none of that is a bad thing. We, that's a good thing. We call them good deeds because they're good. They're good things to do. But our accomplishments and our achievements, they're never so good that God can just overlook our sin and forget about the mistakes that we've made in life. It's hard to make progress down the field if there's a flag thrown on every play. But that's what sin does to our good works. So you can help your neighbor shovel out their driveway, you know, which is a good thing. And you should think about doing that if you can. You know, it's a great thing. And, you know, 10 yards, first down, great. But then comes the flag for excessive celebration when you go telling everybody how good you were because you went and did this. And, and that's kind of how sin operates. It's not that everything we do is evil or old or all evil but that sin has this way because we live in a fallen world of finding its way in to corrupt whether it's our motives or our our perspective there's some way that that sin just continues to try and drag us down so even when we do something good prophet isaiah describes all our righteous deeds as a polluted garment we've got a problem We do good things, and we should, but none of those good things can deal with the sin problem. And our sin deserves God's judgment. It's it's like treason against heaven's throne. You don't just overlook that. It's an affront and an offense against God and his holiness. It's saying to God that, I don't really think you're good enough. I don't think I really need to listen to you. I can do this on my own. My rules are better than yours. No, thank you. You can go be God somewhere else. That's what sin is. And God's holiness means that sin must be dealt with, that justice must be had. And there's two ways for that to happen. Either we pay for our own sin in hell or Christ pays the penalty for us on the cross. Those are the only two ways our sin can be dealt with. And Christ's blood was enough to cancel the debt of all of our sin, of everyone who's ever lived, Everything you've done in the past, everything you're yet going to mess up in. His blood is sufficient to cancel that debt, to clean us up, and to reconcile us to his Father. That's the kind of righteousness that Paul wants. Not a righteousness that he gains for himself through obeying the law, which he knows is never really going to happen. But that which is through faith in Christ. Looking to Christ who is good enough, who was perfect, who 
bore the full penalty that we deserve and having a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, by trusting in Christ. That's the kind of righteousness he wants. That's why he's willing to lose all of his self-righteousness if that means I get Jesus' righteousness. And if you want Christ's righteousness, you have to let go of your own. You have to open your hand and let go of your own so that his righteousness is enough. Paul will gladly lose his self-righteousness in order to gain Christ's righteousness for him. It's the first reason why losing everything is actually gain. The second is that there's no worldly gain that compares to actually being satisfied in Christ. Jesus says in Mark 8, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Here's the, the sucker punch. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What prize are we chasing? Will it really satisfy? This world is full of testimonies of people who have everything but really have nothing. People whose bank accounts are full, but their hearts and their lives are empty. And they know it. And they'll tell you about it. It's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. If our hope is in this world only, what we can kind of clamor and wheedle out of this life, we are to be pitied, friends. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Think about that. I I think I've told this story before, but there's an older gentleman in Wheaton where we lived before we moved here who uh, a friend of mine would spend time with him in in his apartment and then as he moved into a convalescent center and, and such and Just a dear, godly man who loved the Lord. But when he came to that point in his life where he had to move out of his apartment and into a nursing home, all of his possessions fit in a shoebox. That's what I carried into his room. His glasses, his Bible, and a couple other things. It was a shoebox. That's all he had when he came to the end. And that's tells us what prize are we after what what is it is that really going to satisfy if this world is our only hope we are to be pitied but if our hope is in jesus christ then we have a prize that will never disappoint we have a savior and a king and a friend who's never going to leave us nor forsake us we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven that can never perish spoil or fade it's not going to wear out like that you know that brand new car we got that all of a sudden 15 years has passed and it's a rust bucket you know we hope we we gloried in that car when we got it but it's it's you know going the way of all the earth that's never going to happen in heaven it will never perish spoil or fade and so as paul said back in philippians 121 for to me 
To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Think about that logic. To live is Christ. That's what it's all about. And to die, that's more of Christ. I get to be with him. That's gain. His singular goal in life and death for himself and for everyone he ministered to was that Christ would be exalted, that Christ would be honored, treasured, glorified, made much of, that Jesus would be everything to us. Jesus was his goal and there was no plan B. That was Paul. Everything was lost compared to the surpassing greatness of being found in Christ. And if that's true, then third, being satisfied in Jesus frees us to be truly content in life and follow God whatever the cost. If your fulfillment and satisfaction is vested in what others think of you or in the size of your house or your bank account or if it's contingent on whether you feel like you're doing enough for somebody, enough for your family, enough for God, then your joy and satisfaction in life are going to go up and down depending on whether or not life goes according to your plan. It's this roller coaster. But if your satisfaction is vested fully in Jesus, if he is all your hope and all your joy, and your identity and your significance are in him, in who he is and what you've done, and because of you're united with him, you share his status as a righteous child of God, then your satisfaction and joy can be secure and stable even when life isn't. Think about how freeing that is. Even when your dream house is underwater or your dream job is outsourced, when your children make choices you wish they hadn't, or you feel like you're failing again and again in your relationship with God, there's a security and stability because Jesus doesn't waver. As Kent Hughes said, if this be our life, then death is the loss of everything. But if Jesus is our treasure, our joy, our delight, the greatest thing that this world affords, then to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's freeing. That's so freeing. It frees us to suffer, for instance. You know, when Paul talks about this passion to know Christ, he he then describes this desire to share in Christ's sufferings. Which sounds kind of sadistic. Why would anybody wish suffering upon themselves? What's he talking about there? But Paul knows that sharing in Christ's sufferings does at least two things. One, it's one of the ways that God actually changes our hearts. By exposing all that's in our lives that isn't God, that we're relying on instead of God, so that we would be changed to be more like him. So it's it's one he wants to share in Christ's sufferings because he wants to be more like Jesus. But second, he wants to make Christ's love known. And that's the second way sharing in Christ's sufferings works. It's this picture to the world of the love of Christ, the willingness to be wronged and not retaliate. You know, the world doesn't have a category for that. You take my stuff, you pay. 
That's, that's how we operate. But to be wronged and not retaliate just like Jesus? There's no category for that. And if your satisfaction is in this world, you will not have a category for that either. How is it that the churches in Niger, estimates have, have varied, somewhere between 45 and 67 churches burned in two days. How is it that they can rejoice in Jesus and pray for the people who came and burned those buildings down? If their hope is in this world, that ain't happening. They're finding the pitchforks in the clubs and they're going after them. But if their hope is in Christ, then their prayer is that God would take this terrible thing and use it to show his glory. Use it to wake them up to the beauty and love of Christ. Only if we're satisfied in Christ, such that should we lose everything in this world, if we still have Jesus, we still have everything. That's satisfaction in Christ. So it frees us to suffer. It frees us to obey. Not only does Paul want to share in Christ's sufferings, he also wants to know the power of his resurrection. So the power that will one day raise our bodies from the dead just like Jesus as he describes at the end of chapter 3 in verses 20 and 21, how the Lord Jesus, when he returns, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He's going to redeem all that's broken in this creation. But the power of the resurrection not only will do that, it's also a present power that's already at work in us to give us new life now, to give us new birth. To know God, that's what we talked about last week in being alive to Christ and being united in him with his resurrection, that we might walk in newness of life. And so if Jesus is enough, I can be honest that I don't have what it takes to follow God. Because I don't. I don't. But if I have the power, the same power that, that took a rotting corpse from the ground and gave new life to it, if that same power of God's spirit is at work in me, we can obey. I can follow God. I can trust him and, and obey. So it, it's a desire that frees us to, to suffer, that frees us to obey. And then finally, being satisfied in Christ frees us, again, to be content in any circumstance. The end of chapter 4, Philippians, as Paul's describing the, the church's generosity to him and in coming alongside him in his ministry. Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me, your care, the gift that you sent. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If my satisfaction and joy is something that I must achieve or is contingent on my circumstances, then my life will be marked by instability Irritability, anger, envy, bitterness, pride, and despair. That's what the world has on offer. 
That's the best it can give us when I make life all about me. But if I'm satisfied in Jesus, then the key ingredient of all of those things, which is me, there's no room left for me because Jesus is everything. And so I'm free to suffer. I'm free to be treated in a way that I shouldn't be treated, which doesn't mean it won't annoy me. It doesn't mean it won't hurt, but it means that it will not ruin me. It will not undo me. Because if Jesus is our king and our savior, then nothing in this world can take that away. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can steal our joy because nothing can steal our savior. And so we are free to pursue our king. You know, being satisfied and content doesn't mean we're just lazy and we kick back and do nothing. That's not how Paul continues out of this passage. He continues by saying, okay, let's get busy. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. He's got his eye on the prize, which is Christ, to make him known and to know him. That is his joy. And so, is Jesus your joy? That's, that's really the question when we bring it all together this morning. Is Jesus your joy? Is he your satisfaction? Is he and his glory your goal in life? Is the goal of your career that Jesus would be honored, that he would be made beautiful, that his mercy and integrity and, and glory would be on display? Is the goal of your recreation, to enjoy and make much of Jesus by enjoying his good creation and honoring him. Students, is, is he the goal of your education? Or is it just get the homework done so I can play Wii afterwards? Or get the grades I need so I can get into this college or whatever? And get into that college so I can get this career, so I can get this money, and then I can get this house and this car and so on. Or is Jesus my goal? That None of those things are wrong. None of those things are bad. But none of those things are ultimate. Is Jesus my joy? Is he the goal that we hold before our kids? To know Christ and make him known? Or do we hold some other goal out there? You've got to be great at this or great at that. Rejoicing in the Lord Jesus is a safeguard for our ambitions. If you want your life to count for something, let Jesus be your prize. Let him be your passion. Let the pursuit of him be your goal. There's no gain in this world that compares to knowing Christ and being found in him. Nothing. Now tonight, make no mistake, I am cheering for the New England Patriots. Okay? But I love what some of Seattle's players said in an interview last year, just before the Super Bowl. Some of their players and coaching staff. One player said, To understand where we've reached, which is in the world's view, quote-unquote, the pinnacle, you really see how empty that is. Having Jesus in my life, you really see how important that is, because you see that he's everything. And the assistant coach, Rocky Seto, added, 
literally, Jesus is the greatest treasure in the universe. Jesus is better than anything, even better than the Super Bowl, better than any NFL career, any of that. Because as much as we worship this thing called the ring in a championship, I just can't wait to tell people Jesus is way better. And I'll give an amen to that. Let's pray. Lord, that is the truth, and it is your truth, that Jesus is way better than anything this world affords. I pray, God, that that would be true for us, that we would see that when we look at you and we think about who you are and all that you've done, and we think about all the different things that our hearts run after in this life, that all of those things would get their, their perspective and their value relative to the surpassing greatness of Christ. Would to know Jesus and make him known, would that be our prize in life? Because we know, God, that that prize will honor you and will satisfy us like nothing else. I pray that for every heart here. Would Christ be everything? Because he truly already is everything. And we ask it in his name.